0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Meaning of Health podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Craig.
1: And my name's Courtney.
0: And we're here today with a very special guest, Dr. Karen Martin from the School of Population Health at UWA. Um, So welcome, Karen.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: It's great that you could make it on. Uh, And especially interesting because of the variation in um, research and work that you've done over over the years, Uh, I had a look at your profile on the UWO website just to get a feel for uh, what you've done in the past and what you're doing currently. And amongst uh, the list of many things is uh, you've looked at psychological and post-traumatic stress, um, domestic violence, mental health, loneliness, health in homeless and refugee populations, and also some work on physical activity, screen use, energy drinks, and overweight and obesity. Uh, And outside of a university setting, it looks like you've worked in palliative care research when you were at the WA Hospice Palliative Care Association. So that's that's quite a list. Um, So yeah, do you want to tell me a little bit more about what your current title and role are at the school and what you're doing?
2: Sure. I'm a research assistant professor. um, And Half of my role is teaching and half is research. Uh, the teaching involves uh, being the unit coordinator for dissertation and honour students and I'm also coordinating a practicum or um, well, two practicum units. One is for undergraduate students and one is for postgrad students and these students go out into the workplace and develop their skills and apply some of their um, Population health knowledge uh, into practice um, uh, for a semester for the postgrad students and for 150 hours for the undergrad students. So that's really rewarding watching um, the students develop and and grow and and get some confidence.
0: Yeah, and I, I've my work has sort of intersected with yours a little bit, and I've helped out a couple of times with some of the units that you've done, you know, um, assessing students and whatnot. And it is really interesting to see the content of those. Units and how excited the students get about you know what they're doing and whatnot. So it's really interesting.
1: And um, I was lucky enough to have Karen as uh, someone who got me the practicum as well. So very very good. Thank <laughs> you. Excellent. So
0: the notorious Karen Martin. Uh, That's yeah. <laughs> uh, so research is, is not what you've always done. So I'm interested to know a little bit about what you might have done for work prior to getting involved in research. Okay.
2: Um, look, I my undergraduate degree was in anatomy and human biology um, and also anthropology here at UWA. Um, initially, when I left uni, it, it's sort of hard to know what to do. I was really interested in health, but you know, 20-odd years ago there wasn't really public health as a discipline and I ended up being a sleep technologist working at Charlie Gardner Hospital Um, and we were assessing people for sleep apnea and um, helping them with uh, CPAP machines and so I did night shift and day shift and and I became quite interested in research um, with someone who actually I've crossed paths with in the recent times with um, Peter Eastwood, who also was doing research at the time. Um, so that sort of started me thinking research could be where I wanted to go in the future, um, and I started work with the WA Hospice Palliative Care Association um, as a research officer there, um, and that really got me even more interested in research. I found it a little bit hard doing research in palliative care, um, and then my grandfather Um, developed lung cancer and died in one of the units that I was actually working in and it was at that stage that I felt I wanted to do something different Um, and I actually then had children and started teaching biostats at Curtin University um, which was extremely challenging. First year uni students who have this um, Most people don't think they're good at biostats, even though actually many of them are. It's just this mindset that I'm not good at maths. Um, So that was really interesting and rewarding. And I started thinking I really needed more education um, because I wanted to become an academic at a university. I just loved it. I loved working with students. I loved teaching. So I started my master's bioresearch, which I converted to a PhD, which is when I started the physical activity research.
1: So that's a that's a really interesting pathway from sleep to palliative care to biostats, and then to your research. Your, your research career started. Um, what was the transition like from sleep to palliative care? Because they, I feel like they're quite different. Um, yeah. And I know a couple of people that work in the sleep area and. Um, I know from their experience, I don't think they want to go into research. So um, how how was that transition?
2: Um, I think it was, it actually felt really natural. Um, I think, look, I enjoyed working in the sleep clinic. I think always I had a really inquisitive mind. So I was always asking questions about what what could we do better, why why would some people not find the machines that help them breathe at night acceptable, Um, those that did really benefited, why, what was working, what wasn't. So um, being a sleep technologist, I pretty much set them up with electrodes and monitored them overnight. Um, And a lot of it was talking to the patients, um, and I really enjoyed that aspect of my work. Um, but I think it was that desire to learn more about, um, sleep that, um, and, and what helped people sleep, what helped them with their sleep apnea that actually made me think actually research was really much more interesting, um. And I think even at university, I really enjoyed the research. I I remember vividly doing um, an essay about the differences in the brain between a female and male brain, the macro and micro differences. And I found that really interesting. Um, Going into palliative care research, look, to be completely honest, it was more of a convenience. It was, there was a job and it was a research job and I was applying for it. I don't think I really knew what I was getting into. I don't think I really thought about the fact that I be doing research um, uh, about people and with people who were dying. Um, One of the research projects I did was called A Good Death and we actually interviewed nurses about what they perceived to be a good death Um, and and that was really interesting. It was a qualitative project. We explored what they felt were important um, things that needed to be in place before someone died for it to be a good death um and of course you know sort of death touches us all and so I've had friends and and watch family members who've had good palliative care um and whose palliative care hasn't been so great mainly due to funding limitations but um you know, there are still many, many research projects needed um, within palliative care. Uh, it's such an important topic and a priority. Um, but, yeah, for me, I found um, it was a little bit... Um, I was, And when I shifted out of palliative care research, I was quite young. I'd probably be more able to do it now, but I found it um, a little bit... Um, difficult to come to terms with um, working uh, yep. and talking about death all the time. Mm,
0: that's interesting. And and so you, that must have been quite confronting uh, as a young person going into that situation. So, Have you found that your perspective on death and dying and, and issues like euthanasia, for example, has changed quite a bit for having done that?
2: Um, I think... Um, I think a little bit. I mean, the euthanasia debate's quite interesting because um, I know that there are times when um, there are times, unfortunately, rare as they are, where palliative care doesn't get uh, doesn't control symptoms um, sufficiently. And we wrote I wrote a paper with uh, a specialist about. Um, having to sedate a young man who um, could not adjust to the concept that he was dying he was in his 30s and it was a devastating story and he was sedated um at in the end of life Um, I had a very good friend a few years ago who died at 42 and it wasn't a great death and that was very hard to watch Um, The benefit, I guess, of working in palliative care was I could see when more could be done and I I still have colleagues who I could call on to help and I think that was really useful. But uh, I think think the concept of working around death um, for a few years like I did does make me reflect a little bit um, but also more than anything, having a friend die at quite a young age um, with young children uh, is very confronting. And so uh, I think in a way it's made me reflect even more on how much I want to help people. Um, and on my deathbed I want to be thinking <laughs> I have done something good in this world.
1: Yeah, um, I think there's some, some really good uh, messages in, the, in there uh, like the fact that palliative care is so confronting but it is a necessary part of research it's definitely something that uh, people need to look into so um, well done for being so resilient I don't know whether I would have been able to do that but there's a couple of other things in there as well that you mentioned Um, just from what you were saying it feels like that was kind of the start of your qualitative career but then you moved to biostats yes so (laughs) that's interesting in itself so why did you end up going into biostats if you're more of a qualitative person? Because I know most of your research is, is qualitative as well.
2: Well, actually, I'm probably a little bit um, equal with biostats, um, well, with quant and qualitative research. And um, biostats, I was persuaded by someone to teach <laughs> biostats. I was teaching health science communication at Curtin um, at the time. I had a one-year-old child um, and they needed someone to teach biostats and the um, the biostats lecturer was very persuasive and persuaded me to write a u- new unit so I wrote a first year biostats unit um, and taught it so coordinated it for that one year and ran the tutorials also online as well as um, in person. Um, I think it worked because my biostats knowledge was actually relatively basic and so I could um, bring myself down to that early knowledge um, quite easily Um, and it would no doubt it was a challenging year and I remember being asked questions I didn't know the answers to and that was um, a bit confronting but then the same happens now I'm asked questions um, I don't know the answer to with the area that I'm now an expert in and we don't and I guess that's part of research is knowing we don't always have the answers but um, so my biostats knowledge um, is still relatively average I wouldn't say I'm an advanced biostats person I used relatively complex stats for my PhD I use multi-level modeling and and learn um, our software system but um, I'm certainly not enthusiastic about um, (laughs) I'm not like you Courtney um, or you Craig where the idea of doing stats is really invigorating for me but I will do them Um, and I do find um, it quite exciting to come up with some really good results when I do stats. My PhD was mixed methods so I actually um, did a whole lot of qualitative data to help inform some development of some instruments I used to assess the school environment Um, so And still I do um, occasionally um, use statistics, I guess, um, more than anything to try and demonstrate an effect of an intervention and we'll be doing that with um, the research we'll be doing in schools in the next few years. But I think the qualitative research is really important to help contextualise the findings that you have, your quantitative research, is really important, but to, to be able to identify the why and explore the why, why does this happen, um, I, I really enjoy as well, so I, I like... Um, all aspects of research and I like learning about new methodologies as well Um, something I probably don't have enough time to do but um, yeah really want to explore which is why it's always wonderful being a PhD supervisor because you get to hear other methodologies that your students identify and they have a little bit more time to explore so um, yeah I do as you can tell, enjoy research. (laughs) Mm. Um,
1: I think maybe something that we need to quickly cover is the difference between qualitative and quantitative research. Mm -hmm. Uh, So very quickly, quantitative is, um, I would say personally, more to do with numbers and your traditional statistics, so your ANOVAs and your T-tests and all that kind of thing, um, whereas qualitative is really more getting out, talking to the people, seeing how they're going with whatever the research is, uh, interviews, and then also, for example, advocacy and looking at uh, what people are doing in the real world. Um,
0: It's very person-centered. That's right. There's a lot more room for personal opinions and Mm -hmm. perceptions in qualitative. You're looking to find out what people are experiencing as opposed to what. Their number is you know how tall they are or that sort of thing
1: yeah so two yeah. very different areas of research but can very much complement each other
0: yeah I think it's interesting Karen that you started research with people who are at the end of their life and then you transitioned to researching people during your PhD who are at the start of their life um, and that's actually quite a common pathway for people they often will research outcomes for people who are you know, have got a few years under their belt and then they want to work backwards to find out what's causing them to end up in that state. Is that something that you thought about or was it just...?
2: Yeah, I think a little bit. I mean, the reason I started wanting to do some research more health promotion was that I really wanted to explore how people ended up feeling satisfied, I guess, at the end of their life, um, whether or not they were healthy, whether or not they had enjoyed a life where they felt fulfilled. Um, I was interested in children as well probably because... um, I started, you know, my own family and um, I'd started talking to people about childhood health and the importance at the time, um, so this was about 2003, of um, physical activity and overweight and obesity was really starting to become um, quite prevalent in our society. What can we do? Um, and I spoke with a researcher, Billy Giles-Cortai, who, um, who was my PhD supervisor, um, about um, some of the work she was doing and she was looking at how environments impact physical activity behaviour. So um, the project that I did was looking at what aspects of the school environment influence physical activity in the school environment. And um, so we looked at the physical environment, but when I was doing the qualitative interviews before developing my instruments, it became really clear the social environment and policy environment was also really important and, in fact, interacted with the physical environment. So if you had teachers and a school um, culture that was really supportive of physical activity, then they were more likely, from what I could tell, um, to be thinking about what they needed to do um, environment-wise, to provide an environment that promoted physical activity. Um, And indeed, the results of our research found that um, having active teachers um, and um, supportive teachers of physical activity um, encouraged children to be active, as well as some aspects of the physical environment as well.
0: And and have you seen schools and the way they operate change, or not necessarily schools, but uh, those kindy sort of environments and daycare environments change? Yeah,
2: absolutely. And And my PhD was in schools, the primary schools, yeah, and um after we did i did the research about school environments um we started um with my colleague professor lisa Wood looking at what children wanted um to support their physical activity and play and we started doing some work looking at natural play areas and nature playgrounds and so we were doing that in perth for a few years um, and really found that that's what kids liked they wanted to play with sticks and leaves and in the bush and climb trees and So we started promoting that as a way to get kids more active and there's certainly been a shift now. Many schools have natural play areas and it's wonderful to see Um, and I think that concept and understanding of the benefits of nature for children um, and playing outside has really burgeoned over the last few years.
1: Yeah, I think um, just like reflecting back, I know as a kid that was something that I'd definitely prefer as well as like I was very much an active kid that would run amok and climb trees and all that kind of thing. So I can definitely see um, that being a preference for, for most kids. So it's it's good to see that change in schools and I can see it now as well with the schools that I drive past and things like that. Is Those playgrounds have changed, um, which is great. Mm, yeah, Definitely.
0: Interesting. And your work has taken you to some interesting places as well. I believe you did some work in the prisons in WA at one point.
2: I did, yeah. So um, when I was working in schools, and I guess there was there's almost been this pathway, um, I I was really aware. So I went to 27 primary schools and collected data from 27 primary schools. And what I found was that um, there were some schools where children were really um, uh, in, I guess, really disadvantaged situations, and so I was talking more and more to schools, and started working with a few schools um, who had a program called Drumbeat, and so I started working also with um, Holly Oak, who run Drumbeat, um, about and talking with them about their program, and they were about to get it um, up and running in prisons, and Lisa Wood again um, was involved, um, and and set up a contract with uh, Holyoke to evaluate um, drumbeat in the prison setting. And so we went to seven different prisons and the program was run um, quite a few times and we looked at the impact of drumbeat um, on prisoners' mental well-being and post-traumatic stress symptoms. And drumbeat is basically using large djembes or drums, um, like African drums, to... Um, Help express emotions but facilitate discussions and analogies about life, relationship, learning. Um, and it was actually developed as a program in the Wheat Belt um, of Western Australia by um, an Aboriginal elder with someone who worked at Holyoke. Um, so the program is 10 weeks. And it basically encourages the participants um, to talk about their emotions, their life, their experiences. Um, and to think about ways they can improve their lives and and really um, uh, self-respect, self-compassion, working with other people, um, relationships. Um, So it's a 10-week program and at the end of the program they do a performance um, and in the prisons they do a performance to other prisoners and the prison guards and, yeah, really really positive results um, from the program. And then um, I trialled, well, I evaluated that program in three schools, three secondary schools in Western Australia and similar results, really positive um, outcome of of the participants being involved in the program. Um, so
1: the, the concept behind that is is the idea that uh, by going through the process of making music, it becomes a bit more of a community and they start talking to each other? Is that the idea behind
2: using drums? There's a few things and, you know, one of the, I guess, (laughs) the luxuries of doing research is that I've sort of actually started looking into why. Why would drum beat work? You know, what's different about it to sitting in a circle and just talking? And part of it, I think, is that you've got this physical barrier that is a protection but you're sitting in a circle and you're making music um, and you can be really bad at it but everyone laughs and, you know, I've sat in these drumming circles and so what What really strikes me is the smiling that goes on um, and so there's some aspects of mirroring each other's behaviour but I also think the, the drumming, the rhythm, the making the music, um, the sharing um, also uh, has an impact. So I actually think it's almost like a cumulative effect. So you've got some music making, you've got the discussion, you've got the teamwork, um, the watching each other, the, sh- the taking turns to make music, the making mistakes and, and not feeling bad and encouragement of the, each other as well. And that sense of community that does develop as a group is, is really, I think, quite inspiring.
0: And, and to your knowledge, is that program still ongoing? Through
2: Holyoke, Uh, it's still running. Yeah, it's it's um it's actually being uh, transported to America quite a lot and reaching out um, to a lot of prisons and schools in America. It's not still being run in prisons here, unfortunately. We're really hoping that um, that there's some funding to support it being started in prisons, since it was so successful and so well received by the um, participants. The the um inmates there um and the guards and the the staff really thought it was a positive as well um so i i don't know i i really hope so but it's still being run in schools in wa really successfully Mm -hmm. so um and it's just been recently tested so we've just done some more research looking at its use in veteran populations as well
0: that's interesting um so that's a pretty nice segue so that population that you've just been talking about tend to experience trauma at at much higher rates than, you know, the rest of the community. Uh, And I know that that is an area of your current work that you're really focused on. Um, Do you want to give us a bit of background into how you got involved in trauma-informed care and, you know, how that's progressed as time's gone on for you?
2: Sure. Um, Like I was saying earlier, Craig, that um, understanding when I went out to schools and looking at um, the... Childhood experiences of some of the children who were displaying quite dysfunctional behaviour was really quite um, confronting for me. I think, um, and I certainly didn't wasn't brought up in a wealthy area. I was actually quite poor as a child, um, but we, um, you know, we seemed to manage our behaviour. I guess there was, of course, some dysfunctional behaviour, but we generally would know that that child came from a family where there was some some issues, but. Likewise, in the prison setting, you know, talking to a lot of the, the inmates was um, their like, childhood experiences, and they had really um, experienced really tough times: um, domestic violence, neglect, abuse, um, controlling parents is also another um, a problem where children really do suffer from um, being overly controlled um, and having no power. Um, But what um, I found with Drumbeat is when we were looking at children's um, mental well-being, psychological distress and post-traumatic stress in the group of children who were displaying dysfunctional behaviour and in the Drumbeat program is that a lot of them rated quite highly um, for post-traumatic stress symptoms and, and distress. And so I was talking to the psychologist at the school and we were talking about how schools can be potentially transformative for these children and a lot of schools, um, but actually more importantly communities and as a society, we don't understand the impact of childhood adversity and trauma on people's behavior and mental wellbeing. So that started to really um, become an interest for me in something like, well, what can we do? What can we actually do to make a change here? How can we teach um, society? How can we get teachers, um, school staff to understand that a lot of the time children who display dysfunctional behaviours, and that can be um, externalising behaviours, angry, violent, aggressive, loud, inappropriate, or it can be internalising. So um, mental health problems like depression, anxiety, anxiety, self-harm, you know, what can we do? And so if we can encourage teachers to understand, um, then we might be able to change uh, schools to being a little bit more supportive of these children Um, and so to try and avoid um, labelling, punishing these children and, and actually provide sort of supportive therapeutic environments and and i mean many teachers are like that already and don't even realize they're trauma informed but other um, teachers uh, find it difficult they, they're not sure how to manage these children um, and particularly if the demographics of that area change and they're not used to to um, supporting these children or teaching these children mm-hmm. can be really difficult
0: and for people who might not be too familiar with trauma and how it manifests in certain behaviours, what are some of the basic signs that you would say, you know, might indicate someone has got some trauma that they're dealing with?
2: Yeah, there's a few and it it's very individual depending on children and boys definitely are more likely to display externalising and girls internalising. But um, for boys, uh, sort of anger that is explosive or um, escalates really quickly Um, sleep problems, um, uh, attendance at school can become problematic, Um, engaging with friends, arguing with friends. Um, Even uh, for younger children, bedwetting, there's actually um, a really comprehensive list on the Department of Communities website that can be sourced to actually help parents, teachers, community members identify if they think um, they're... they're, uh, children they're caring for are experiencing or have experienced trauma. Um, And for girls um, and boys, it can be that um, withdrawal, the isolation, um, the expression of sadness, uh, the crying easily. And people talk about these children often as being not resilient, but often there's more going on and we need to Mm. explore that.
0: Yeah, we'll include the link to that department website so people can have a read if they're interested. (laughs) Uh, and so whereas this work has obviously progressed over time for you and I believe you've had a recent development um, about dictating what you're going to do next.
2: Yeah, it's been really exciting. Um, the WA Department of Education have actually um, provided a grant to um, help us to uh, in- increase trauma-informed practice um, awareness and um, uh, in schools and to try and encourage schools to understand the impact of trauma on children's behaviour. And so we've developed a model whereby um, schools will be supported by the department as well as um, by my research team to actually um, understand and learn about some strategies they can implement to help these children Um, What we've done is we've extracted um, the main or the common principles from about 20 different trauma-informed programs, Um, and so we've come up with these these principles of trauma-informed practice for schools, and we're currently identifying research um, that uh, will provide to schools of strategies, best practice or evidence-based strategies to help the school become safer or help the school... um, interact I guess with the community and get the community on board Um, so basically we're providing an evidence-based I guess toolkit for schools Um, the schools will be supported by um, different um, divisions within the Department of Education and we'll be looking at um, students mental health pre and post intervention we'll be talking to family members Um, We'll be uh, getting stress levels of teachers measured, Um, so we'll be doing, again, mixed methods, qualitative and quantitative, to see if this um, strategy works. The idea of this approach was we wanted a strategy that was sustainable and upscalable Um, and so we feel that the work that we've done in this model will be um, those two really important um, aspects so it's not a program that we take into schools and say here do this and leave it's actually a culture a A shift and understanding um, and also ensuring that the schools aren't given more to do but that it's a slightly different way of working of communicating um, of trying to reduce punishment um, and some of the strategies that are really common that we all use and um you know, we, we often use shame to try and control children's behaviour, so to try and encourage schools to think of alternatives. Um, and a lot of it is that schools just historically have used um, controlling strategies, so getting schools to shift getting the system to shift um, policies to change to being less punitive is no easy task. I think it's going to take a while. So
1: it's really not about giving the teachers more work to do. It's it's more about that uh, shift in ideas and identifying the kids that might have gone through uh, trauma and then helping them progress
2: through? Not just, I think, the children who have experienced trauma, because we're often not sure. So I think actually, in a way, the principles of trauma-informed practice we've developed are actually just best practice principles. So a child who is experienced expressing slightly different behaviour, who might be more upset than normal or who might be displaying anger that um, they often don't normally display, actually could be that that child has experienced something um, quite distressing that morning, the night before. And, and sometimes domestic violence might just happen out the blue. It's not like um, they've the child's experienced it since birth. And so sometimes we don't know. Um, so I guess in a way, It is important to identify the children who have experienced trauma, like you're saying, um, and help them with extra intervention, external support. Um, That's really vitally important. But to use sort of consistent supportive strategies with the whole school community and all the children, um, but... um, actually to try and reduce punishment, I guess, of all children and to understand when a child is misbehaving, there's probably something going on for them. Um, And if they're misbehaving consistently, then there's probably something even bigger going on and we need to be thinking about that and offering support and guidance rather than um, actually just saying you're being a bad child.
0: I'm curious. Uh, It sounds like a really worthwhile initiative. But it also sounds quite complicated Mm -hmm. uh, to deliver and also to measure. So I'm curious, what are some of the key outcomes that, one, the education department are wanting to see and, two, you as a researcher are interested in seeing?
2: Well, there's quite a few, I guess, outcomes. And, yes, it is really complex and um, very ambitious, um, but I'm actually quite optimistic, as are the people I work with in the Department of Education. Um, one of the things that we'd really like to do is, or to see, is a decrease in stress of children in these schools, um, and um, an increase in mental well-being. We'd like to see teachers' stress levels reduce um, by providing them a bit more guidance of what to do to help support um, misbehaviour. With the goal that what we suggest, first of all is evidence-based, but that it actually helps prevent future poor behaviour. So it might be difficult to change a teacher's practice initially um, when you've been consistently using one approach but to try a different approach to try and prevent it happening in the future and a lot of that is about developing really good relationships between children and their teachers. So the other thing we'd like to see is an, um, an increase in children's positive perception of their relationship with the teachers and increase in their connectedness or feeling of connection with the school. The other thing that um, we will, and the department certainly is interested, is reportable critical incidents. So hopefully a reduction in some of those negative um, critical incidents that are um, happening and that do happen within the school system. An increase in attendance. We hope that children will be more engaged in school and more likely to attend school Um, and, of course, a reduction in suspensions and exclusions. So it sounds like
0: there's some safety outcomes, some behavioural outcomes, and I'm interested how, if you guys have any expectations that that would translate into better educational outcomes as well in terms of educational attainment or performance.
2: Absolutely. You know, the fact that we sort of hope um, that attendance increase is certainly something that is likely to directly benefit um, children's academic outcomes, but also less disruption in the classroom. And more attention of these children and we know that children who are um, emotionally dysregulated which often happens when they've experienced um, adversity don't learn well so if we can help these children overcome some of the symptoms associated with trauma um, then we are helping them to be better placed to learn and that's something that is really important and we talk a lot about how well Schools are there to teach children, and that is very true. true. But we're, schools are also there to teach children about emotional regulation, um, but also um, how to develop healthy relationships and respond to adversity. Um And children will not learn properly if they are not feeling good about themselves, if they are feeling stressed, if they are, as I said, dysregulated. So until we develop and think of strategies to help these children, um, they will not learn as well as if they were um, well balanced and and feeling good. Um, So ultimately, you know, we're also going to be helping the whole school community because not only would it help those children who are um, directly um, experiencing dysfunctional um, family lives and dysfunctional behaviour, but also the children who have healthy home lives, who um, they sort of see and understand um, and are in more supportive environments overall. Mm
0: -hmm. And... Do parents fit into this strategy as well? Because they seem like a pretty big piece to that puzzle, too.
2: Absolutely, and you know, a lot of we like to blame parents for things when children go wrong, um, or when children's behaviour goes wrong. And ultimately, what we need to remember is is parents are trying their best, Um, and parents who are not um, providing uh, the ideal environments for their children themselves are likely to have experienced trauma or adversity and so parents who um, have alcohol or other drug problems or who are violent um, they are that is a coping mechanism for them now don't get me wrong I'm not condoning violence in any way um, but I want to say that um, we're not pointing our finger at these families and saying you are bad it's Um, important that we offer these families support to change as well and to try and reduce domestic violence perpetration making sure we have enough programs to support behaviour change, getting women and their children safe um, and actually helping to um, support those environments Um, of course we're not expecting schools to do that um, but part of what needs to happen concurrently with this, what we hope is some systemic change in the education system is to actually ensure that the communities are involved and we need communities to be um, pointing um, out or, or challenging domestic violence and making the perpetrators accountable um, and not ignoring it and, and sweeping it under the carpet and trying to... Um, help that child but so there's lots of strategies we need to put in place to help um, families um, where there is neglect, abuse, um, excessive control um, but not expect that you know by having schools providing a safe, secure, emotionally supportive environment is the be all and end all, it's not the answer and we need to work with families to understand that some children in the school environment, are not suspended or excluded because of their home life, and that actually doing that is more harmful than good for these children.
1: So, this whole project seems to be just one stepping stone in the the whole context of this situation. Um, I'm just curious with your with the outcomes that you're looking at. Um, are you doing a short term and a long term? period for for well-being and things like that? Because obviously these are all long-term things that we need to look for and that can be quite hard to measure sometimes.
2: Absolutely. I think we're only looking at short-term and unfortunately that's often, you know, due to research funding being short-term and we're actually only looking at change over a one-year period. Um, but again I feel um, and the department feels that we can make change quite rapidly um, because supportive relationships can dramatically change behaviour quite rapidly Um, but I think the long-term impact will be really positive and um, if we see continued reduction in suspension and exclusion for the next few years in these particular schools and if we see better education outcomes and that's a real positive but at the same time we're going to be trying to to um, increase trauma-informed practice in other schools and we'll be making those resources available for other schools as well. Um, So we are hoping for systematic change or systems change. Um, But you're right, this is just one part of a very large um, puzzle of trying to um, change how society addresses mental health um, behavioral dysfunction and actually really looking at the cause and trying to intervene early we need to get down to the level of prevention um, and early intervention if we want to actually start um, reducing crime rates increasing um, mental health and well-being and decreasing suicide rates um, and and decreasing mental illness um, it's vital that we start investing um, early. Mm.
0: It's interesting that the countries around the world that do take, uh, they sort of look at things through a therapeutic lens like Scandinavia and whatnot, you do see some of the lowest crime rates in the world and their prisons are not expanding and getting bigger like ours are here in Australia and I know in America they have been as well for a long time. Uh, so it's interesting that you Absolutely. say it's at every level of society.
1: Yep.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, Okay, so there seems to be another area that you also have delved into in your research and that's really looking at disadvantaged populations. Um, So uh, I've read a little bit about your initiative with the the disadvantaged populations research initiative. Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Possibly? Is that a thing?
0: Yeah, so that's a research group within the school.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Is that,
0: is that right, DAPRI? Oh, yeah,
1: DAPRI. Yeah.
2: Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Should have said the acronym. <laughs> uh, um, that's actually, you know, that research is um, a lot of work with Lisa Wood who does research with homeless populations. And so... Um, There's a real tie-in, I guess, between uh, trauma-informed practice and the outcome of homelessness. Um, And so what we're trying to do, I guess, is to intervene early but also think about, okay, what are the outcomes of trauma and adversity and homelessness is a big um, outcome that we need to address. Um, And so, again, trying to think of different strategies to not just get people out of homelessness Initially, but to get them housed in the long term and to think about, um, I guess, a different approach. And um, so the research has started focusing on intervening um, when people are admitted to hospital and are homeless. Um, and we've started exploring um, aspects such as when um, people are released from prison, Uh, what happens if they have no home to go to. So the other thing, I guess, that we really are trying to focus on is reducing that intergenerational trauma. And so you've got people who are homeless, families who are homeless, and not just getting them set up for the short term, but thinking about what strategies are in place in the longer term. And we've been evaluating um, a couple of homelessness prevention programs, which are um, addressing people who are at risk of um, being evicted and another program which is for people who are over 50 who are also at risk of losing housing. And so actually what can we do, um, what are these services doing do they work? What can they do better? And unfortunately, a lot of the struggle I think that we're confronted with with these evaluations of these homeless prevention programs is the short term nature of them, and that we really need to be, as a society, providing not just short term funding or short term interventions, but longer term strategies. Um, that are starting to be considered, but to actually get these people off the streets um, and into safe and secure housing, so that you can then start addressing some of their other outcomes and their other issues they might have, like alcohol and other drug use.
1: So, how how big of a problem is homelessness in Western Australia? Because I don't know much about it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, how many people are actually affected by that? Do you know? <laughs> it would be a tough statistic to try and find because it's yeah, very difficult to it's, figure it's, out these populations.
2: It's actually a lot larger than many people realise. And the latest census, um, you know, they have a figure um, that, <laughs> that um, has been provided, but um, what they actually are uh, have realised or or believe is that it's actually a real under report Uh, it's hard to actually do a census of people when they're rough sleeping or when they're sleeping on neighbours or friends or families couches um, or in cars there's also people who live in tents and caravan parks and short-term housing like that as well so um, we really do think the current homeless rate is an underestimation but we are noticing that it, the rate is actually increasing as well over the years and it's it's quite evident um, not just in Perth but also in other capital cities that it's a massive problem um, Australia-wide.
1: And homelessness doesn't just... Uh cover the people that you you typically think of, so uh, as people in Perth would know we we do see uh, some homeless people there there, but they're, that's not just the population we're looking at. It can be people who are couch surfing for a few months, they are
2: homeless, and that's what we need to look into as well. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes you'll be chatting to a friend and and I've got a friend who said, you know, he was sleeping in his car when he was 18. He was homeless. He'd been kicked out of home. And um, so there is an invisible homelessness that goes on as well. And we're, we're not aware Um, of how prevalent that is. And they may not be sleeping on a park bench, but they don't have safe and secure housing. And um, I heard of a family recently who was staying in a caravan park um, and it's quite cold and they're living in a tent and it's a family of three children, um, you know, under five. And and that's quite confronting that we have um, such a wealthy country but so many people who still don't have warm, secure shelter.
0: And I think the real challenge is coming up with a definition of homelessness that people can kind of understand and understand that it's not just people who are sleeping rough on the street. It's people all around the place, like you are saying. Absolutely. Um, And also the fact that homelessness is not a cause of most people's problems. It's a symptom. And so it's going back to the root causes and why are those people homeless there are a lot of other things going wrong in their lives that cause them to end up being homeless and
2: absolutely i'm sure
0: you're seeing that in your research
2: definitely and we did some research um in melbourne where we were interviewing um some people who had been homeless and were luckily luckily enough um housed due to some of the programs the wonderful programs that are going on around australia um and every person that we've interviewed um had experienced some trauma as a child and again it's intergenerational trauma usually they reported their own parents had experienced trauma um, whether or not it was uh, being part of the stolen generation or their own parents um, having a drug addiction or alcohol addiction or being homeless themselves so basically um, that cycle really is quite evident and when you've experienced trauma as a child or great adversity your risk of being um Uh, misusing substances um or uh performing criminal acts or um having a mental health disorder um taking your own life or, or being suicidal are much higher and that's what we're starting to really understand through our research that um, adult outcomes are very much influenced by the environment that you're within, not just in the very early years but as you're growing up and developing. And if you are given a loving, safe environment with parents who give you unconditional love, then you're at a much better place than, than, than people who have not experienced that um, and who have experienced um, domestic violence or abuse or neglect.
1: Which is why I guess this um, the trauma-informed practice that you want to put into schools. I can uh, make a link
2: that it would also potentially affect homelessness as well because it's all all interconnected. Absolutely, and we've often heard of the school to prison pipeline, where we can identify early children who are likely to end up in prison. Um, and for some families, there's, um, you know, many members of their family who of their different generations who end up in prison as well. So the whole hope is to actually try and stop that cycle and to actually intervene as early as we can but it's not just in schools that we need to be trauma informed and we need to be trauma informed in the mental health system in our overall health system, in our universities, um, in our society as a whole, we actually need to stop calling out for tougher penalties and harsher treatment of people who do wrong and actually encourage people to be more understanding of why people may end up um, addicted to drugs or be a perpetrator of domestic violence, because that's how we will get these people to change. And If a man is violent and ends up in prison, um, that's not necessarily going to change his behaviour. We need to be investing in programs that change his behaviour because a woman might eventually leave a violent man, which is wonderful when she does, but that man will end up with someone else. And, And that's what we need to understand. Why do people do it? What can we do to prevent it? And what can we do to challenge the current practice that we have of punishing people for behaviour that is um, societally unacceptable?
0: Mm. I thought it was interesting and it's slightly off topic, but um, one of the local football coaches here, a guy called Ross Lyon, would talk about this in the context of his players, you know, misbehaving or not doing the right thing. And he always said, we challenge the behaviour but support the person. And I think that's kind of interesting, like an interesting um, concept for that group as well, um, because we know that locking people up and not doing anything else doesn't work. Because our prison population is going up, and people are reoffending and going back to prison at a greater rate, going back to prison sooner a lot of the time. So, you know, unless something's happening whilst they're in prison, it's really not going to change. If anything, it's just going to keep getting worse, and the same people are going to be more and more disadvantaged.
2: Absolutely. And I think, you know, quotes like that by Rostlein, I, I heard him say that as well, and I, I loved it. And if we have people in position of power who people look up to, and um, actually who live by that philosophy, then um, it it really, I think, is so helpful. And I agree, Craig. You know, we need programs in prison that help address some of the trauma that the people who are in prison have faced. And again, I've interviewed people who've been in prison, and the the childhood experiences they've had have been incredibly traumatic. And um, rather than going, "Well, don't do this again," you know, think about. Um, actually using programs where we encourage them to train where um to change where we foster positivity and behavior that is offering them purpose and the opportunity for them to be generous to give back to the community and to actually want to be different people and i think that is vitally important
1: yeah i think that's definitely a huge area um but as I understand it, behavior change is extremely difficult to achieve with a lot of people. So this was something that I, I learned with uh, my bit of background in psychology is that behavior change is one of the hardest things to achieve. Um, so good luck <laughs> with that. It's, it's going to be very difficult. Um, but... Uh, there's definitely ways where
2: behaviour can change and we can get those those positive aspects from those people. And I'm actually doing some work with um, a researcher called uh, Gabrielle Brand, and she has been looking at ways that we can change behaviour um, in an area that's quite difficult. and one of the strategies that she started using, is um, presenting videos or pictures where people actually make judgment. So, for instance, she was looking at people who had experienced a stroke and what medical undergraduates thought of the person who had experienced a stroke. Um, And when you see an image of someone who's experienced a stroke, um, people would be quite judgmental and and not particularly wanting to work with, with those people. But when you tell um, the medical students the story about that person's life and you hear their voice and, and see some video of them, makes you really uncomfortable because you realise you've been quite judgmental. So we hope to use similar strategies where, unfortunately, you need people to be a little bit uncomfortable about their own judgment and their own thinking um, for them to start shifting their perceptions and their beliefs. So at the same time as saying we need to intervene early and we need to change how people think, we also need to be doing research about, well, how do we do that? What strategies do we put in place? How can we shift people to um, practising more based on evidence than, than what we think works or what our society tells us will work. Because society constantly tells us, you know, we read it, that we need to be tougher on people. Um, but we know that um, through evidence that that doesn't work. So how do we get that message across in a way that will get people to believe and understand it? Because often people don't believe research. Um, So, okay, well, what can we do? Well, we can actually present you with something that makes you really reflect and think about your own um, preconceived ideas and, and actually think about, well, maybe I could think differently. I might be wrong. We hate being wrong, but we have to admit that sometimes we are.
1: And I think that's a really good link back uh to what I feel kind of started your your research career, and that that's the asking questions that the qualitative part of it, and I think that's why qualitative is so necessary because we can learn exactly why people change their behavior, what influenced it, um, and then from that, we can create concepts and programs that can influence behavior change, mm. which is really cool.
0: yeah, I agree. Um, I think we're probably coming towards the end, Karen. So just before we do finish up, uh, if people are interested in speaking to you further about your research or anything else related to your work, um, how can they get in touch with you?
2: Sure. Um, I'm more than happy for them to email me directly, um, karen.martin at uwa.edu.au. Um, I love chatting to people about my research and my work and I'm more than happy to um, share ideas that I have.
0: Excellent. It's been a, an excellent chat. and. Yeah really interesting to hear the the detail about what you're doing because i've seen you talk about your work before but not in such detail as Mm. that so it's really Really been great.
1: Yes, thank you very much for coming and joining us as our guest today. It has been very, very good. Thanks for having me. You're very
0: welcome. And Courtney, how can people get in touch with us at the podcast?
1: Uh, Well, we have an email and we also have a Twitter account. But I have forgotten what the email is.
0: Okay, so the the email is (laughs) meaningofhealthatoutlook dot com.
1: I'll remember it one day.
0: Yeah, and what about the Twitter?
1: Uh, That is at Health Means What. So you can find us on there and there'll be links to our podcast, but you're probably already listening to it and know where it is.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much once again, Karen. Yes,
1: thank you. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Craig.
0: And we will speak to everybody again soon.
1: Sounds good. See you later.
0: Thank you. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming.